This morning's scripture from Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and Jonah 2, verse 10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Well, many of you are probably thinking, finally, finally, we are with the big fish. (laughs) Finally, I mean, come on, Jonah is four chapters long, Pastor Hinkle, and we have spent three Sundays and we're not even out of the first chapter yet, and not even to the good part with the fish, and now we're finally there. There's a reason why we've taken that long, and if you've been with us, you know why, and we're going to spend a few more weeks in the book of Jonah. But today we focus on this really interesting part. You'll notice that we're at the end of chapter 1 and the end of chapter 2. This is something that is taking place. So just to catch you up, if you don't know the story of Jonah, Jonah is running away from God because God has gone and said, I want you to go proclaim my compassion by warning the people of Nineveh, who are your rivals, your arch enemies, the ones who seek your destruction, that if they don't change the way they're living, that destruction will come. And, And you're doing that out of compassion. And Jonah says, I don't want to do that. And he runs the other way. And he gets on a boat with a bunch of sailors. And the Lord sends a storm out of compassion to wake up Jonah. Yet he just goes to sleep. And finally, those who are there, these sailors throw Jonah over. And he hits the water. And it goes calm. That's where we're at. And it says... The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and for three nights. Jonah gets swallowed and taken in. Now, I know that many of us have grown up with veggie tales and other stories and lovely little, little things about this big, gigantic fish this big well that comes in sw- where there's plenty of room for Jonah to walk around and set up house that he looks out the eyes of the well as windows that he kind of builds a, 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 a table and he grabs fish that are getting sucked into the gullet of the big fish and he eats those for dinner in those three days that he's waiting to get vomited up but that's not the case at all If anything, he's in an enclosed, tight space. And he's there for three days and three nights. Now, when we come to this passage, people look at it and they go, okay, so did Jonah die? Did he not die? Was he saved all the way? Or did he die and then was resurrected? Well, in some ways, that doesn't really matter. Now, I have a personal idea of what is taking place here. If you want to know what that is, you can ask me later. I'll tell you what I think. But again, let me say, I don't know that it matters. What we do know that he is there for three days and three nights, and that matters. Because there's something that's going to happen there that lets us know why it's important for three days and three nights. If you remember, when we started this series, we talked about Jesus, and we talked about Jesus proclaiming the sign of Jonah. Let let me go back to Matthew chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 38. 
Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except for the sign of the prophet of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, Jesus there is foreshadowing. He's talking about his burial and preparing for his resurrection. Now, Jonah is in the belly of a well for three days and three nights. He is going to be spewed out at the end of that. He is going to come out with newness, with new life. So whether he really dies or not, there's a change that takes place. And Jesus is speaking of that change here. He's saying, look, three days and three nights are important. Just like Jonah, I am going to be in the grave for three days and three nights. And then I'm going to resurrect. Then new life will come. Then the revolution begins and all things change. That through the power of the cross, then moving through my resurrection, I have set everything right again. Right? That the world is broken, that it has fallen apart, that it is going against how God created it to be. And then in the resurrection, after the cross, the resurrection brings new life. Now that's important for us. And we see that picture happening in Jonah. So what does it mean for us to have new life? Why is that important for us? I think there's three reasons why we are afraid of new life, to be honest. I think there's three things that are within our fleshy hearts that make us nervous about this idea of being made new. Not that we love our old self, but we certainly like him. The first one is this. I believe that we have an idol or a desire to have credit. See, if, it, if I die and I come back to life, then that means I lose all credit about how good I am or how right I lived or what's right or good. It means that something has taken me from death into life. A dead person can't resurrect themselves. They need somebody else to come in from the outside to change them. And that means I don't get credit. That means that I don't get to be the one that says, well, I once was bad, but now I'm good. I mean, I used to be a real jerk, but through hard work and perseverance and really thinking about what I need to do better, I've become a better person. We like credit. But a dead person who's made alive again doesn't get the credit. The person who raised them gets the credit. So where is it in your life that you desire credit? If you think, I, I just want to be known for what I've done. I think the second reason why we struggle with what this new life is, is, is we like control. Not only do we want people on the outside to kind of look in and say, what a good person that person is, or how great they are. We also want to know that we've done it our way. <laughs> See, we believe that we can figure it out. That we're smart enough to figure out the mystery of the way God works. And if you just give me the list of things that I'm supposed to do, God, then I'll take it from there. Thanks for making a way in Jesus, but now I'll, I'll do the rest of the work. I appreciate that. You know why? Because I'd like to control it. I want to control when I'm going to get convicted of certain sins. 
Because there's some of them I really like and I don't want you to touch on them yet. I, I want to be in control of how you push and bring about things that will challenge me. I, I'd like to be in control of that. So I'll make the decision when that happens, Lord. See, but if I've been dead and I've been brought to life, that means I no longer have control. The person who's raised me from the dead now has control. They're the one that says, no, I've brought you from death into life, and now I give you the direction that you need to go. I set the course for your life. I'm the one who will bring in the things that will encourage you. I'm the one who will put you in a community of people that you might look around and go, what a bunch of misfits. That's okay. Because we've moved from death into life. I think the third thing, and maybe this is just me, is we like to be right. We like to be the ones that are right about it. Not, not just that we want credit, not just that we want to control it, but that we want to be proved as right. So if we figure out the way that it's supposed to happen, and we've walked in that way all by ourselves, then we get to be the one that says we're right and everyone else is wrong. A lot of ways, that's where Jonah was. Right? Jonah, God says, I want you to go do this. And Jonah says, no, no, you can't control me. I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to go do it. Because I'm right. And you're wrong, Lord. You don't want to save those people. Because if you save those people, they'll come after your chosen people. That's what's happening here for us. We have this desire to be right. We want to be recognized and credited by our own control that we had the answer. And we forget that God is a mystery that reveals himself in Christ in a way that is oftentimes hard for us to comprehend this compassion and radical love and mercy and grace that pursues this place that calls out to bring in those who are enemies that puts to death hostility, that says your enemy is the person I need you to go to. Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 16. And he says this to us about this death and losing in this resurrection and what it means. Then Jesus, it says in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 24, then Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The paradox of the kingdom of God is this, that we have to lose our lives. We have to lose our control, our desire for credit, and our desire to be right in order to have full life. Life complete. Life that aligns back with the way God before the foundation of the world created it to be. The very thing that he's been pursuing over and over and over again in his steadfast love. That there's a place where we have to deny ourselves and take up the cross of Jesus. Say that I will die and be resurrected anew. 
Romans tells us that we are dead and then made alive in Christ. So for those of us who have been walking this journey with Christ, that means that our lives have changed, that they're no longer ours, that we've moved from death to life, that we no longer have control, we no longer get credit, we no longer can claim that we're right. What we can do is give praise and glory to God for moving me from death into life, for resurrecting me, for making me who I was supposed to be. And for those of you who are seeking this out and trying to figure out what it is, know that it is so difficult for us to give up control and credit and rightness. Jonah doesn't do a great job, and he got swallowed by a whale. Big fish. Right? We'll see in chapter 3 and chapter 4 in particularly that Jonah really doesn't have a come meet Jesus moment in the belly of the well. There's this great prayer that we're going to look at next week that is a great guide for us of how we engage in repentance and confession and thanksgiving. Foreshadowing, giving you a hint. But what we see in Jonah's life is that he struggles with it. And we struggle with it. So so let me say, as, as you're walking and trying to figure this out, don't just judge whether or not this is the truth by how we do. All I can say is trust in it. Walk in it. Let it permeate your life so that you can see what God does when he moves you from death to life. And here's the reminder that God gives us in this walk in the book of Jonah. Notice, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And the Lord spoke to the fish. The NIV says, commanded. Commanded the fish. And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The work that is happening here, the work that is happening in our lives to move us from death into life is the work of God. He's the one who provides. He's the one who commands. He's the one who speaks into existence our very life. He is the one who calls forth before the foundation of the world, saying, yes, I have chosen you, I have made you mine, I am bringing you in, and I will make you brand new. And so even though we struggle, even though there are times where we see, oh, I'm hanging out in the graveyard and I've picked up the dead bones of my old life, even at that point we know it's not a failure because God has done the work. And God's work is everlasting to everlasting to everlasting. He is the one who has created the new life in us. And if God has given you life, it cannot be taken away. And so for us, we move to this place of going, I'm new. And that means I live differently. If I no longer need control, if I no longer need credit, if I no longer need to be right, what it does for my heart is it turns me out towards others. It gives me the ability to see the need of God's love to be expressed to all those that I encounter. When I don't need to be proven that I have control or that I am correct, that I'm right, right? Or if I don't need credit, then I don't worry about what is going on around me and what people think about me. I move into the place of compassion and mercy and grace in order to love all that God puts in me in my way. 
from my family and my flatmates and my sisters and my brothers and my coworkers and the person that I encounter on the street and that person that just cut me off. I no longer live thinking about me. I live to bring glory to the one who brought me back to life. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you, we acknowledge that it is hard for us to do this, but it is in your grace and your mercy that you make it possible. It is because of Jesus and his work that we are able to walk in this way. And so, Father, today we say, if there's anything that is of you that has been said today, let it burn up, let it pass away, let it go. But if it is from you, let it take root in our hearts so that it will bear good fruit to you and bring you glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand and respond in singing this song?